Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And in this podcast, we are continuing our journey through the seven deadly sins. Uh, Yes, to what extent are they sins? To what extent are they uh, detrimental to our lives? To what extent are they evolutionary necessities? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to continue to discuss all of this. So last time, we talked about pride. This time, we're talking about Envy, which lines up nicely because in Dante's Purgatory, Dante has to ascend this mountain of purgatory that connects earth to the sky, uh, earth to the heavens. Uh, At the top of this mountain is the earthly paradise. And individuals that are going through purgatory, they have to work off each layer of sin before they're fit to uh, enter into the the higher realms. Right. So the, the first level you end up going through, a terrace on this mountain, the first terrace, deals with pride. And the second terrace deals with envy. And uh, it's interesting, when one travels to this uh, imagined realm, you find uh, the envious shades, the, these individuals who were, who were very envious in life and are going to have to work this junk off before they can, they can rise higher. Mm-hmm. They're all leaning against each other uh, again, and against boulders. They're all sort of huddled around like beggars. Okay. And as Dante comes closer, he finds that their eyelids are sewn shut with wire. Okay, yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah, because uh-huh. envy, uh, especially, uh, you know, our, under, our, our sort of figurative understanding of it, it's all about the eyes. It's, you know, green-eyed envy. It's about, it's about looking at other things and it's other about coveting. and coveting. Yeah. Um, and so these individuals coveted in their life. They looked with, with these envious eyes, and now all these envious eyes are shut. See, I think that is the sort of attention that envy should get. Because it is, it's actually pretty important. And we, uh, as we were researching this, I thought this is really very interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you, and th- you think it's exactly the kind of attention envy should get? Well, you no, no, no. I don't actually think actually have I, their eyelids shown, shown shut. No, okay. especially not with wire thread. That's just that's just cruel. Well, I was re- interestingly enough, side uh, note, but apparently they would take hawks and they would uh, part of the the training of a hawk would be to uh, sew its eyes shut with uh, with laces of gut. Mm. Like you know, tennis string or something, and that was just part of training the hawk to accept food from a human master and all this. So right, that yeah. it's not like the hawk was coveting other hawks. Right, right, right. But it's interesting that that's where that came from. It wasn't just Dante being morbid, and I mean, he's being a little morbid. He's Dante, but but he right. he, he got the idea from the way people uh, trained at hawks. So. Well, but it, again, I think that this is the the sort of import that MV has. Uh, New York Times writer John Turney actually was talking about it being one of the, the seven sins and being kind of boring. He said, at first, you know, for him, it was the most useless of the deadly sins, excruciating to experience, mm-hmm. shameful to admit, bereft of immediate pleasure or long-term benefits. To an evolutionary psychologist, there's a certain logic to seducing thy neighbor's wife or stealing his goods. But what's the point of merely coveting them? Yeah, yeah it was an interesting point he made because it is, it is not a fun sin. When you hear people talk about, oh, I'm going to go out and say, you know, or like a carnival um, right. type deal where it's like, oh, I've got to start being good tomorrow, but tonight I'm just going to covet my face off. Like nobody <laughs> says that, you know, it's, yeah, it's all yeah. about the other vices. No one's like, oh, I'm going to so be envious of uh, Brad Pitt tonight. It's going to be great. Right. Or and I'm then, sneak then it in front of you be- and I'm going to covet you all up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's talk about envy. Let's start to get into meat of, in, yeah. the meat of it because uh, some people think of it as jealousy, but it actually is not jealousy. Um, envy is more of a longing for what you don't have, whereas jealousy is more provoked by losing something that you might have had mm-hmm. to someone else. Like uh, like 
two people are competing for a job, uh, and one gets it over the other, then the person who didn't get the job right. could be jealous. Right. Right. And actually, envy comes from the Latin word invidere, which means to look at with malice or cast an evil eye, which is sort of interesting when you were talking about the sewing shuts of the eye. Again, mm-hmm. it's all relating back to that consumption. Um, and is there an upside to this? It's kind of funny. All the other sins, there's a bit of an upside. But this one, uh, I have to say, this is a bit of the dark side. And yes, there's an upside in the sense that you can use envy along, um, let's say if you use the prism of admiration alongside mm-hmm. with it, um, you could be more likely to closely note how someone behaves or has attained his or her success and then try to emulate that and create those conditions for yourself. Yeah, you end up with these sort of, with these two different versions of envy. You have a benign envy and you have a malicious yeah. envy. On the benign envy, I, uh, just for consistency's sake, I, I, I looked up uh, in the uh, Satanic Bible to see what Anton LaVey had to say about of it. Of course, yeah. He's, you know, very, was very much making kind of a, a new age uh, argument for uh, for these uh, various sins and against organized religion. And and uh, he, he said that envy means to look with favor upon the positions of others and to be desirous of, desirous of obtaining similar things for oneself. Envy and greed are the motivating forces of ambition, and without ambition, very little of any importance would be accomplished. Okay, and so, a, and yeah. And that's a valid, goat hats aside, uh, that's, a, that's a valid <laughs> argument, you know? It's because cause you think of the people in life that you, you look at our heroes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's a certain amount of, of envy there. You're like, man, that, you know, that dude is an awesome writer. I wish I had, had skills like that. But, but in many cases, it takes on that, that form of, I'm going to really look at what this guy's doing. I'm going to try and emulate, uh, how he approaches his art. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to be better for it, you know? Yeah. And that's what I think is interesting about envy is so much of it is predicated on your ability to imagine, mm-hmm. um, your life. Uh, a future life for yourself. And again, that's where the benign comes in. If you could look at someone and say, oh, I feel motivated by this person. Uh, there are things that this person has that I want that, that fit along with what makes sense in my life or what's really important to right. me. Obviously, the malicious part comes uh, into play when you pay attention uh, to people who you feel like are superior to you to, to the point where uh, you wish bad things would happen to these people, mm-hmm. um, that you began to resent people. You spend way too much mental energy on obsessing about something. And that obsession is really at, at the core of this. Yeah, so malicious envy becomes, it, it's it's not as much a, I really admire that person, I want to be like them. It's more like, I really admire that person. Or not as much I admire them, but like, that person has things I wish I had. I can't have them. But stabbing them would still would still feel pretty good. If I can't if I can't <laughs> right. achieve that level of fame, I could at least take that level of fame from them, mm-hmm. which on the surface sounds just insane. But as we'll, as we'll discuss, if you, if you kind of break it down, uh, you can you can find some potential evolutionary advantages in that as well. Right. Well, I mean, what you're trying to do is find their weakness so that right. you can bring them back down to your your level, right? And yeah. So, in a sense, you're leveling the, the playing field. Right. It's kind of like, oh, that person's an awesome runner. My benign envy says I can train up and become as good a runner as, as they are uh-huh. and maybe you know get a little faster and beat them. The other one is like, I will never be as good a runner uh, as they are, but I bet if I cut their tendons with a knife, right. then I could easily outrun them. Either way... The, each scenario ends with me winning the race. It's kind of the, the Tanya Harding effect, yeah. right? Like, wow, you're such a great skater. I'm just going to hit you in the in the um, <laughs> <laughs> knees and, and break your knees. Um, so, yeah, there's malicious, there's benign. And it turns out that in memory studies, this sort of envy 
really plays into our ability to remember details about people. Um, there have been experiments with envious students at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth and the University of Texas at Austin, Texas. And researchers bore out the conclusion that students who read stories about envy-inducing characters had far better recall than non-envy-inducing characters. Again, here's your mind really dwelling on um, uh, this person and what they have or what they don't have or what you don't have. And it also turns out that um, there's a bit of ego depletion involved in this. Oh, so it ends up actually wearing down your mental faculties. Yeah, and we talked about yeah. this. We talked about ego depletion is, is um, one of the things that happens when... It's part of decision fatigue, right? Decision fatigue, exactly. I have to make up all these decisions about what goes on my sandwich, what, mm-hmm. I'm, what music I'm going to listen to, you know, uh, how I'm going to get to work. Uh, and by the end of the day, I'm not able to really tackle uh, difficult cognitive problems. Exactly, because you, you're suffering from ego depletion. So another study, this is this the this, this same uh, group of researchers, they had students contemplating a wealthy, attractive peer, and then students were asked to work on puzzles. Mm-hmm. And compared with the cl- uh, control group, they gave up much sooner, which is the same thing that we saw uh, with the decision fatigue and the people that had to make up uh, all those decisions or make all those decisions and then were later given a self-control test. Mm-hmm. And those people, I remember, there's something like they had to put their hands in ice water. And those people had, were able to put their hands in ice water for half the time than the, the control group. So, again, you're seeing parallels here with the eroding of, of um, your mental faculties, of which, honestly, we only have a finite amount of mental energy per day, right? Yeah. So it's how are you going to spend it? Yeah, are you going to waste it sort of dreamily staring at this other person's life or worse Stabbing them in your imagination. I mean, yeah, and and the thing is, the whole there just all you have to do is go through the checkout line at the grocery store, and and whole industries thrive on on envy. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, all these tabloids about what's the celebrity doing, what's the celebrity buying, what's the celebrity's uh, personal life consist of. I mean, you walk by it, and and you're just like, what? How do people fill their days with this? You just yeah, just gaze into this uh, the celebrity abyss. There's one magazine that, that's, uh, I don't know if it's us or something, but I remember flipping through it once and they had a section called Celebrities, They're Just Like Us. <laughs> and it, it just completely cracked me up because it was like, this person wears a sweatshirt when they're going to the store too. And so it reminded me of this this idea. That's not quite Schadenfreude. Yeah. But it's sort of like, well, they look kind of schleppy sometimes, too. That makes me feel a lot better. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not, it's not quite. Not me, personally. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I understand what you're saying. It's not, they're not, it's not quite, oh, I, I hate this person. I want to see him stabbed. It's like I'm taking comfort in the fact that this person is mortal as well and, yeah. uh, and, and is open to the same flaws and normalities that I am. Well, and it turns out that Envy and Schadenfreude are actually linked, researchers think, and we'll talk about that in one minute when we come back. All right, we're back. Schadenfreude. Um, Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, which is an interesting uh, concept and one that uh, you actually find some theologians discussing. Uh, Thomas Aquinas um, in uh, Summa Theologica uh, said, uh, Wherefore, in order that the happiness of the saints may be more delightful to them and that they may uh, render more copious thanks to God for it, 
uh, they are allowed to see perfectly the sufferings of the damned. So he's talking about saints being able to see people's torments in hell. Yeah. And then there was, a, I, I ran across another example where um, Jonathan Edwards, the uh, author of Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, he was making pretty much the, the, the same argument. The view of the misery of the damned will double the ardor of the love and gratitude of the saints in heaven. Fourth, the sight of hell torments will exalt the happiness of the saints forever. It will not only make them more sensible of the greatness and the freeness of the grace of God in their happiness, but it will really make their happiness the greater, as it will make them more sensible of their own happiness. Which sounds kind of nuts. Yeah, you know? kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's this idea of Schadenfreude of um, sort of lowering the veil of perfection, right? Yeah. And uh, if if someone you envy, they seem like they are just bulletproof, and then all of a sudden you see that they've got a chink in their armor. Right. United. And, and it's, it's the tabloid thing again. It, yeah. It's like, let me see my heroes in unflattering swimsuits. Let me see them making mistakes. Let me see them growing older. And I, I always find a, a morbid fascination in the, the phrasing of that because mm-hmm. it's, uh, if, if it's somebody that the reader of the tabloid is meant to like, it is, uh, it's always like so and so's brave last days. Like, um, like I think Elizabeth Taylor was having brave last days for like half a decade. Then. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. did. She but did. but then other people, it's just the language is always far worse. Like oh, they're just they're just on the verge of death, you know. And 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 people eat it up because it's they're, they're getting to see their their heroes fall. Their their gods uh, are are brought down to their level and then. Well, isn't on. it the whole problem? I guess you could say the problem of our existence is our. our um our consciousness in the sense that we know we're all going to die someday. So, mm-hmm. yeah, at, at a very basic level, it's yeah. like, hey, this is happening. Uh, I know it's going to happen for me. It's going to, it's happened to this person. But 999 birthday candles, to bring it back to that, what's going to yeah, happen when we reach true. the point where the first celebrity that everyone hates is like, and guess what, guys? I'm living forever. <laughs> and then, I mean, the, the, I the hatred we, yeah. that will rise up uh, among the, the tabloid uh, uh, readers will just be immense. I think our example... For that episode was Charlie Sheen. Yeah, I don't think much has changed since we recorded that. Um, if there's anybody else that could replace him, but I want to tell you about a study uh, about envy and Schadenfreude, and um, it has a great title. Actually. Oh yes, yeah, it's called "When Your Gain Is My Pain and Your Pain Is My Gain: Neural Correlates Correlates of Envy and Schadenfreude." And this is a study by Hidehiko Takahishi, which we talked about him in the Pride uh, yes. episode. Um, so he and some other researchers set out to to uh, research this, and this was their um, part of their in their abstract, it said, we often evaluate the self and others from social comparisons. We feel envy when the target person has superior and self-relevant characteristics. Schadenfreude occurs when envied persons fall from grace. Uh, and they go on a bit, and then they say, our findings document mechanisms of painful emotion, envy, and rewarding reaction, Schadenfreude. It's really fascinating what they did here, and if you guys can just kind of bear with me as I talk a bit about the details, mm-hmm. um, because they did two different studies that relate together. They had 19 subjects that were asked to visualize being a protagonist in scenarios that college students might face while undergoing um, an MRI. So they have these scenarios that they're they're inserting themselves into as the protagonist. And uh, for example, um, the following scenario: a male subject was asked to imagine himself as the protagonist. Student A, this is the person that they're envying, mm-hmm. uh, did well in his final examinations, but the protagonist did not. Student A is talented in baseball, but the protagonist is not. Student A is popular among girls and has a beautiful and intelligent girlfriend, but protagonist is not popular. And does not have a steady girlfriend. 
Uh, so they go on to say student A is successful in a job interview and getting along really well with the company he wants to join, but protagonist is not. The salary is great for student A. He has a luxury condominium downtown. I mean, it just gets worse and worse for, mm-hmm. for protagonist. Takahashi had the subject imagine a Schadenfreude-evoking scenario then, in which the protagonist is then doing much better than student A. And the scenarios are, were varied to include the gender of the subject. Um, and other students might be assigned the same gender as the subject to help them relate, right? Um, and also details were changed so that there would be a degree of similarity between the imagined student A and the protagonist. So analysis of the resulting brain scans compared the activation in different brain regions under envy-invoking and then schadenfreude-evoking and then neutral scenarios so they could test this out in a control-type situation. Um, and then the subjects were asked to rate their relative feelings of envy and their gloating in the scenario. So this is, okay, this is all, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. They're, they're really trying to set this up. Uh-huh. Um, this is where it gets interesting. The envy-producing scenario showed activation in the anterior cingulate cortex, and that's the place in the brain that's associated with error detection or conflict, which is also activated by pain. So the conclusion here is that people experiencing envy, which is associated with shame are feeling emotional pain hmm. or the pain of social exclusion, which I found fascinating because here's this part of your brain that, that is really supposed to perceive physical pain. Uh-huh. But if you are envying someone, you're actually feeling some sort of emotional pain from your envy. And we have to think back to the purpose of pain itself as the, I'm, my, my body is feeling pain. Mm-hmm. Therefore, something is wrong and must be addressed or avoided. Like there's a stick jabbing into my thigh. I should remove said stick. Yeah. Um, my stomach is hurting. I, whatever I ate is bad and I should probably not eat it again. So we have to take that and extrapolate it into the, into social dynamics. Yes. You're, you're feeling this emotional pain of I am not as good as they are. I'm not feeling as uh, my self-worth uh, is, is ta- really taking a hit here. I should become as good as them. I should I should rise above them. I should stab them in the thigh. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's just all about the stabbing. Well, I mean, it's the stabbing is the purest uh, form of, of malicious envy, I think. Yeah. Well, okay, so this is the other uh, interesting part of this is that when they had the, the downfall of student mm-hmm. A, they saw activation in the ventral striatum. Uh, which is associ- associated with rewarding stimuli. And so Takahashi interpreted the activation with Schadenfreude as a feeling of pleasure, hmm. which makes sense, yeah. right? Um, so they feel like there are correlates here, you know, that envy and Schadenfreude go hand in hand. The other thing uh, that correlated with this is that if the student or the, the person in this, um, I should say that the protagonist, the person in the study, if they did not feel any sort of kinship with this person, they did not feel uh, that they were at all on the same uh, level mm-hmm. uh, and that this, they couldn't imagine themselves inhabiting this person's world, they did not feel any envy. They did not have any activation in the um, anterior cingulate cortex or in the ventral striatum when they were when they had the Schadenfreude scenario. So you have to be able to put yourself in their shoes to some extent to you, actually take pleasure in their downfall. You have to imagine this life for yourself mm-hmm. because even though there might be some great object that someone has in their possession, if you don't somehow connect with that person, relate with that person, then it doesn't matter to you. Hmm. So, you you know, it, what, it, that could be a, a myriad things, right? It could be... Um, 
they have socioeconomic background. Um, it could be the kind of music they listen to. Um, but it makes sense that in a workplace scenario, why there might be more instances of envy, because in a workplace scenario, you're more likely to connect or not necessarily connect, but to... Um, well, they're in your world. They're, only, they're yeah. in your world. That's yeah. right. They're, they're on your playing field. So that was really fascinating uh, about this uh, study. But not only that, uh, there's neuroscientists um, that are taking the findings of the activation of the anterior cingulate cortex. Again, this is where the pain, physical pain, would usually light up the activation of the... Um, the brain, and they're saying that it's an indication of development of complex emotions piggybacking off the primal brain system. Hmm. So that the so rat-like hindbrain. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. So what they're saying is that that, that this could point to um, not us developing more complex systems in order to deal with more complex feelings, but really piggybacking off these primal feelings. It's the it's the brain as an ice cream scoop uh, again. You know the idea that that, uh, that it's just one more scoop added to as the brain evolves. Uh, yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Not not an overall uh, re- rehaul of the uh, the system. It's yeah. not a banana split. It's an ice cream cone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, double decker. Well, I can't speak for most workplaces, but we do have relatively few stabbings here at uh, how stuff works. It's true. So. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of maiming going on here. Right. Um, and I'm going to say that's. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that's probably because there are not a whole lot of people, as far as I know, that are morally disengaged. And when I say morally disengaged, I don't mean to say like, oh, they're, you know, good or bad people. I'm talking about it more in the sense of um, a study that was uh, called a social context model of envy and social undermining. And it was in the Academy of Management Journal. And they were saying that if an, if an employee feels morally disengaged at work, so they're feeling disconnected from other co- coworkers, they are far more likely to not just envy coworkers with whom they feel they have similarities. Again, that's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they would actually act on those on those uh, thoughts of envy and try to sabotage them. Interesting. So potentially, say, an office where individuals don't have much contact with one another, mm-hmm. they, would, they would be more likely to be uh, morally disengaged, I would think. Well, it kind of depends on the person. Uh, it, it's, it may just be that they feel disenfranchised uh, mm-hmm. or they just don't feel connected because I think a lot of us now work remotely, but we still have relationships, Right. Uh, you know, thanks to the, the, the magic and the power of the Internet, right? Um, but and th- what they did is they looked at 160 employees, um, from a Midwest American hospital, and they tested whether the person had a lack of identification with colleagues because they knew this would increase the mm-hmm. them acting on their envy. And respondents took two surveys. They were eight months apart to assess their envy, their affinity with colleagues, and their comfort with subversive acts. And the research, the research basically said that envious people with ties to coworkers were less likely to act on their envy, while lone wolves seemed to enter into a bubble of moral disengagement that allowed them to more freely undermine colleagues by, you know, withholding information or spreading gossip, for instance. Uh, and so the, the moral of this story was, you know, hey, companies, you should really make sure that all of your employees feel like they have a stake in the matter or they feel connected to each other in one manner or another. Yeah, make them feel like they're on the same team, that it's, yeah. uh, that it's a we and not a, like, I, that I'm not this embattled employee, that it's like, well, they're all out to get me anyway, so I might as well. Do whatever the heck I want. So yeah, I mean that, so that you don't enter into this bubble where it's okay to morally distance yourself. 
and uh, maybe just start jamming up the, the copying machine on purpose. I don't know. Oh, is that why I was broken the other day? Mm-hmm. Well, it reminds me, uh, I can't help but think of the, the film The Spanish Prisoner by David Mamet. Did you ever see this? I did, yeah, a long time it had, ago. had, uh, like, uh, Steve Martin plays uh, the shadowy character in it, and... Uh, and that's largely all I don't remember what the exact plot was, except it had to do with a classic scam called the Spanish Prisoner. Yeah. There's a, a really nice scene where this, uh, this, the, the, the protagonist in the story is, is really sudden, like his working condition is suddenly taking a dive and mm-hmm. his employers are being kind of jerks to him and he's, he's like, what's this about? And this other character, uh, explains to him, well, it's because they're about to screw you over. So, they're they're having to create this moral distance from you right. to do it. Right. Uh, so so you can see that that potentially working both ways in an employee employer situation. Well, we've seen moral distancing in so many different situations. We talked about it in lying, where people start to use third person references for themselves mm-hmm. as opposed to first person. Uh, we've talked about it in eating animals, how you start to talk about meat in very different terms. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, you, you can definitely see this at work in all different levels of your, your relationship to your world. Uh, like anytime you hear someone talking about bureaucracy, uh, which, granted, there's there are plenty of times in any corporation, uh, any kind of working environment where you can say, like, oh, that seems a little bureaucratic, mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, in the negative sense. But it's also a, like an instant way to to distance yourself from the actual people and the, you know, you're just like, oh, there's a bureaucracy in place. There's this soulless entity that is messing with my uh, happiness. Well, it is. The the ability to label it like that is a sense of comfort, too, right? Right. Because it's like, oh, this nameless, faceless thing, which mm-hmm. is, you know, impacting my life. And a nameless, faceless thing, I can totally steal office supplies from that. You know? Yeah, post-it notes. Yeah. Let's have my name on it. <laughs> <laughs> Journalist Oliver James, he, ha- he has a talk on the School of Life about envy specifically. And it was really interesting. He talks about envy as being affluenza. As opposed to influenza, right? Affluenza. Affluenza. This preoccupation with becoming affluent. And he says it's largely cultural. He says that if you live in Denmark and had an envy-inspiring childhood, meaning things happened in your childhood and which sort of set you up to to envy others, uh, you're less likely to express it than if you live in New York or London because at a very simple level, much less energy is um, expended in mainline continental societies in fostering envy. So his point there is, there, you know, this has got to be cultural. There are some countries, there are some regions where this, this uh, pursuit of things and and abstractions of uh, happiness via wealth mm-hmm. aren't really important. And he says that since the 1960s, four times more has been spent per capita on advertising and marketing in America compared to the continental mainline Europe. And he says, and throughout the rest of the English-speaking world, including England, twice as much is being spent. So he says, okay, let's let's look at the marketing and the advertising because it's very much encouraging you to covet, to want things that other people have. Huh. It it reminds me of the um, in Tibetan Buddhism, the uh, Buddhism in general. There's the idea of the predas, the realm of the predas, the hungry ghost. Mm-hmm. These, uh, which is one of the lower realms that one uh, can find themselves born into. And uh, the Predas have enormous bellies and uh, and tiny, narrow necks and, and, and ravenous mouths because they're just so hungry for things, mm-hmm. uh, for material possessions generally. You know, they're, they're, they're so hungry for the things in the world around them, and they don't have the ability to keep up with that hunger. Well, see, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. There you have uh, a culture in where you're actually talking about this, right? Mm-hmm. This is, if you're, I don't know if people are sitting around the dinner table in Tibet, for instance, and talking about this, but here is a story about envy mm-hmm. and um, 
and, and what happens when you engage in it. And this is another thing that um, James Oliver was talking about. There are cultures that are much more traditional that actually try to minimize evil. And what he was talking about is that um, they have belief structures in place to kind of downplay it. And he was saying that, for instance, an evil eye might be cast upon you if you were to start to brag about your success, hmm. right, or your successes. And um, he's also saying that cultures that have less property rights. And this is not just, we're not just talking about giving somebody the stink eye here, where they're just kind of, you know, kind of, but like the actual right. evil eye, an actual curse. Pulling out the evil eye yeah. and basically saying, stand down. Yeah. Like, we, we're not really interested in, you know. Oh, man, wouldn't it be great to do that at like, you go to a, you go to a party <laughs> and somebody starts off on some, some, some long discussion about how great they are and you can just pull out the evil eye and let them have it. Yeah. You yeah. say, hey, 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 you jack and apes. That's enough. Just, uh. Just <laughs> enough with that. I got my evil eye out. You know, maybe we should, maybe this is something that we can introduce in the United States. Yeah. You know, and market that, and, and market and other people will covet it. Your friend talking a little bit too much about their promotion? Evil eye. I think there's something here. Coworker loves his new condo a little too much? Evil, evil eye. eye. Yeah. You can even get an evil eye tattoo. Yeah. There are all <laughs> sorts of possibilities here. Uh, but it, I mean, with his point though, is like, here are these cultures that are actually saying that this is not acceptable. Um, in our society for you to act this way. Well, again, we go back to Dante and the idea of a whole bunch of envious individuals sitting on the side of a mountain with their eyes sewn shut. That sounds like uh, like a pretty good argument there. Maybe just nobody listens to it anymore within the, those cultures. I don't know. Yeah, that's a little bit harder to sort of bring up in a social situation. Well, you know, in terms of a metaphorical, what do you do? Do you like a picture of someone with their eyes Yeah, Yeah, I get, yeah, shut? I guess see what you're saying. There's not an instant... Uh, Sort of thing. I mean, all you could do, I guess the, the, the version of it we have that we go to most in Western cultures is simply to roll your eyes or sort of walk away from the conversation or drastically try and change the subject. Or you could put some sort of like make it look like wire um, thread on the rim of your eye and then mm-hmm. shut your eyes. Yeah. Or you inject a little of the schadenfreude. If you're bragging about something, you ask a biting question that uh, knocks the block out from under them a little bit. Like, That's uh, right. like someone's got a new car and they're like, oh, my new car's so great. And you're like, oh, so what's the uh, depreciation rate on a, a new vehicle like that? <laughs> well, what's the insurance like uh, for that vehicle? And then, yeah. bam. But you know what? That's what right Oliver James says. He actually he talked about an instance in his own life where there was a colleague that he started to attack on national television, no less. <laughs> And, or I guess on the BBC. And, uh, Not physically. And no, no, okay. but he started, he said it was a complete rant and it didn't make any sense to him until later he realized that he envied that colleague and was trying to take him down a notch. Huh. So you see that his, he must have been getting some sort of kick there, some sort of reward in his brain. Um, but you know, this is what he says. He says that, that this sort of envy, this wanting, this void, this filling the void, is driving a lot of mental illness. And he says that if we could just turn more inward and try to figure out the things that, that make us happy, like he was saying, if you can if you can identify the state of flow that sometimes we engage in, that mm-hmm. state of flow in which time just evaporates, right? Because you are so engaged in something and it's so pleasurable. And you're living in the moment. You're not living in, in a path that you're concerned about or a, a future that you're worried over. Yeah. yeah. He's saying if we could just engage in that and quit focusing on the exterior and what we think we're lacking, then a lot of this sort of mental illness of society would would not be as bad as it is um, if we could quit listening basically to marketers and advertisers and didn't really care about the, the halftime uh, Super Bowl ads, you know, for instance, that this is sort of a path that would, would get us away from that. Yeah. 
and we could depart the realm of hungry ghosts. I like it. All right. Well, let's um, let's call the robot over and uh, see if he has an interesting uh, listener mail, maybe to cap all this off. All right. We have a couple here. Both are rat related, which I like. Uh, the first one is a respond to our. Uh, recent and, uh, dare I say, awesome Rat King episode. Devin writes in and says, Hello from Canada. Thank you uh, for all the amazing podcasts, uh, with the exception of your Rat King episode. I listen to all your podcasts while at work uh, as a postman here in Edmonton, Alberta. Alberta is thankfully a, quote, rat-free, unquote, province. This knowledge uh, was a security blanket that I clung to while listening to you. Your podcast has me gagging and quivering uh, while delivering mail. Since childhood, I have had a phobia of rats. I am able to control this fear down to a mild discomfort in most cases. The Rat King, however, is one of the most disgusting things I could possibly imagine. Uh, And then it all descends into gibberish. Uh, from there. So uh, uh, that was a, a delightful email. Yeah, I'm see. sorry to, to cause such consternation, but that was a, a really funny email. Yeah. yeah. And then we also heard from Sue B., uh, who writes in about the same gender sex pairings in Animal, the uh, gay animals episode we did. And Sue B. says, I had two pet rats that are sisters named Natalie and Ika. It has a explanation point at the end. I was going to say, that, that's the kind of name that you would need an explanation point with. Ika was large and more aggressive, but not as adventurous as Natalie as to exploring their surroundings. Natalie would get into anything not sealed off. Ika was very interested in pinning Natalie down and licking her genitalia or mounting her as a male would. Natalie had no interest in this. At times, Ika's ardor was very aggressive, and Nat would have to fight her off. Ika would be uh, be, uh, relentless to the point that it distressed me. I wanted to tell her to stop raping her sister. So many character aspects herein. Incest, same-gender sexual attraction, a possibility of asexuality, and just plain domination. I guess that's my two cents. Best regards, Subi. Wow, that was the oddest configuration of words ever tumbling out of your mouth with, <laughs> with such uh, intonations as well. Yeah. I don't even know what to say with, about that. But that's fascinating. We, uh, we asked for examples of uh, same-sex animal adventures in yeah. his life, and uh, that was an interesting account. So it did, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. This level of detail. Yeah. <laughs> so, hey, uh, if the rest of you guys would like to uh, pipe in, if you have something you would like to add about Rat Kings, about same-sex relationships between Rat Kings, or uh, just good old green envy, uh, let us know. Uh, we'd love to hear about it. I mean, specifically, um, you know, how do you process envy in your life? I mean, to, to what extent do you feel like you're aware of it? Do you ever catch yourself uh, becoming envious? And, uh, and then how do you process that? And did you ever know how much it wore your brain down? Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like a little worn out after a long bout of envy? If so, let us know. Um, you can find us on Facebook as Stuff to Blow the Mind, and you can find us on Twitter as Blow the Mind. And you can send us an email at blowthemind at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.